Good morning, everybody. Well, thanks to the openers, to Becky and Dave and Stan and Jeff and Joe, my little toe-tapper. I've never forgotten that little analogy, my little toe-tapper. So thank you. It's a lot of work that goes into these openings, and uh, I, I appreciate it. I appreciate it a lot, especially in the sense that I can't play an instrument. The only instrument I know how to tune is a radio. So uh, I appreciate all the work and the effort that goes into the, the openings. But this morning we have a question before us. How am I to be ready to give an answer or an account for the hope that is within me? I kind of realized when Wally was giving his presentation, and it wasn't so much a sermon last Sunday as it was a presentation, a presentation of survey results that he had. If you remember correctly, he uh, sent out about 20 surveys to people asking a lot of very pertinent questions in people's lives. He got back about 10 responses and he shared a lot of those uh, responses with us. Well, this morning I want to take those questions that he left us with at the end that we need to be prepared to answer for and hopefully give us some practical ways that we can be prepared to give an account of our hope because that is the answer that we have, is our hope. And so many people discount that in today's life, in today's world. But that hope is the centrality of Christianity. Today, I'm going to give you step two. Wally was step one, and he presented a problem. Today, I'm going to look at step two, and what is one of the solutions. It's not the only solution, and there's going to be other solutions that you come up with on your own, and that's great. But I'm looking at step two this morning in response to Wally's uh, message in his presentation. And it's important to have a step two, because without a step two, we're left with the question, what if? Case in point, when I was eight, nine, ten years old, I don't remember, growing up on the farm, it was a honking windy day on the farm. I mean, the winds were blowing like you wouldn't believe. And I found a sheet of plywood in our barn. So here I am, this little boy, standing outside, trying to hold this plywood above my head to see if I can get airborne. But you know, I had no idea what I would have done if I had gotten airborne. See, I hadn't thought ahead to step two. The situation is different this morning, but the outcome would be the same if we don't have a step two in our Christian life. We're going to crash and burn into the ground. Before us this morning, we have a scenario of how we are not only to live our life in the Christian world, but how we are to be an influence with our life in a secular world. One of the best ways to answer people's questions, objections, they tend to be philosophical and abstract in nature. I'm not talking about the questions where somebody says, are you sure you interpreted this word right in the Bible? I'm talking about the type of questions that Wally left us with last week. If we're going to be able to answer those questions, we have to be able to give an answer about the hope that is found within us as Christians. Well, let's take a look at our key verse this morning. And in fact, I'm going to go back a few verses, starting at 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 to 15. Finally, all of you, live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. 
Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. For whoever would love life and see good days must keep his tongue from evil and his lips from deceitful speech. He must turn from evil and do good. He must seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. For in your heart set apart Christ as Lord, and here it is. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Most people understand hope as wishful thinking. Students, this time of the year, are hoping they can pass an exam even though they didn't bother studying for one. A lot of young people are hoping they can find a mate, a soulmate that they can spend the rest of their lives with. A lot of seniors are just hoping that they can get up in the morning, get out of bed. But that's not the hope that we're looking at here as Christians. I found a definition of biblical hope on the internet. And it's just so bang on. It's just two words long. Confident expectation. See, that's what Christian hope is. Christian hope is confident expectation. And I hope to bring out some of that in just a minute here. And in fact, I went through and I found a whole bunch of um, examples of Christian hope, of confident expectation. I whittled it down to 12 for us this morning. The first one, hope is a firm assurance regarding things that are unclear and unknown. The first verse in Hebrews chapter 11 says it all. Faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. Hope is often sometimes we have, but we don't see it. Like you can see the hand in front of your face, but it's an assurance that you have. The New Testament idea of hope is a recognition that Christ is found the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. Prophecies. If you remember in the Bible, Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the prophets and the law, but rather I've come to fulfill them. Christian hope is rooted in faith in the divine salvation of Jesus Christ. In other words, salvation came through the divine resurrection, not through obedient circumcision. And I'll let you look up those references and the context of them that are on the, uh, um, on the slides there. And you'll have an understanding where Paul was coming from in his, uh, in his quote here. And likewise, it's the future hope of the resurrection of the dead. And again, you need to look up the reference here, and I don't have time to go into them all, but I'll leave that to your own study. But here Paul is addressing a group of Sadducees and Pharisees that he was brought before, and he was forced to defend himself and what he was doing. And in the mounting of his defense... Paul spoke of a future hope. We also have the promises that were given to Israel. Christ brought salvation to the Jews through the fulfillment of what was prophesied in the Old Testament. The new covenant that Christ came to usher in was first brought to the Jewish nation, God's chosen people, the Israelites. We are benefits of that partially because the Jews as a nation rejected that. And God also 
offered salvation to us Gentiles. And because of that, the redemption of the body and the whole creation is also a hope that we have. We patiently wait with all creation for the fulfillment of that hope. Hope is an eternal glory. In our hope, we, as Jews and us as Gentiles especially, now share in the glorious riches of God's chosen people. Remember, there are neither Jews nor Greeks, slave nor free. We're all one in Christ Jesus. We have that hope. Also, we have the hope of the return of Christ. Our hope allows us to say no to ungodliness as we await the return of Christ. There's also a transformation into the, likely, into the likeness of Christ. Our hope allows us an inward purification as we await the return of Christ that will result in an outward transformation of our lives. We also have the salvation of God. That's a hope that we have. Christ, Jesus Christ is God's saving plan for mankind and our hope. Or simply, Christ himself. That alone is a hope for us. Christ alone is our hope. Not this world and all of its trappings and idols and things that are made by man. And finally, hope of Christians is brought into being through the presence of the promised Holy Spirit. While remaining here on earth, we have the Holy Spirit to guide and counsel us in the hope that we have. Now, I've left this point, this 12 point, with the Holy Spirit to the end, not because it's the least important, but in some ways, it's one of the most important things to remember as we look into answering the question of how am I to be prepared to give an account for the hope that is within me. Well, now we have a working definition of hope. And we have some examples of what it means to have hope and what that hope is. But now we need to take a look at how we can take that definition and apply it to our lives so then we can, in fact, be prepared when we go out into the world. The mission field is just outside these doors and we have to be ready for it. And if you do not look to the guidance of God's Spirit in all of your encounters with people around you, you're missing out on the most important part of step two. See, Luke chapter 12 Verses 11 and 12 say, When you are brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how you will defend yourselves or what you will say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. Just as Jesus taught his disciples to rely on the Holy Spirit, so too we are to open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit's leading when we are asked to give an account for the hope that is in our lives. And I can't emphasize that enough. We need to be ready to be led. We're not the ones in charge here. Okay, so step 2A is complete. We have our definition, confident expectation. We even have examples. We even have allowed the Holy Spirit to be our coach. Well, what's next? What's step 2B? Well, it's simply that, to be prepared. Just because we have a coach, that is the Holy Spirit, in our lives, doesn't mean we just sit back and take it easy. When somebody wants to partake in the Olympic Games, one of the greatest sporting events that there is in the world today, they don't just go out and hire themselves a coach and say, okay, come with me to the Olympics and uh, 
I want to represent my country in track and field, whatever. You don't just sit back, put your feet up and wait for that day to come. You train. You punish your body. You break it down and build it up again so that you can be the best that you can in that sport. Your coach is there to help you, but you've got a very pivotal role to play in that yourself. See, the Bible tells us, too, that we are metaphorically in a race. You do not know, or sorry, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and make it a slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified from the prize. Jesus told his disciples that when you get into a situation that you don't know what to say, don't worry, I've got your back. My Holy Spirit will give you the words to say. But that doesn't mean you just sit back and do nothing. Jesus didn't just call his disciples, kick them out of the nest into the mission field and say, now go and uh, spread my gospel. No, he taught them. The whole time the disciples were with him, he taught them. And after Jesus' death and resurrection, he continued to teach them through the Holy Spirit in the lives of the apostles and those that would come after the apostles. We have an obligation to learn. And we have the Bible to teach us. That doesn't mean we have to be theologians. You don't have to go and become a master of divinity. But you have to read your Bible. Read it in such a way that you open your heart for the Holy Spirit to lead you into the understanding of the Bible. That's how we are to be prepared. And remember our key verse, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Well, how can we be prepared? The first way that I have is to simply give your testimony. There's no easier way to show the hope that you have than to explain to somebody how that hope has changed your life. And the beauty of a testimony is they can't tell you that you're wrong. It's your story. They can accuse you of being wrong, but it's your story. And as long as you're truthful with it, it's your story. And it has a lot of power associated with it. Now, I suggest that you have three testimonies. And by three testimonies, I don't mean three different stories, because that would be dishonest. But rather, you should have a 30-second testimony, a three-minute testimony, and even a 30-minute testimony. You see, standing in the grocery line, you don't have the time to tell somebody your whole life and how God has changed it for the better. But you do have time to give them a couple sentences of how God has changed your life, perhaps in that situation they just mentioned to you. Or likewise, if you're on a bus with somebody, you may only have three minutes before the next stop. And you need to be prepared for those three minutes. They could be the most important three minutes in that person's life sitting beside you. And there are times when you've got lots of time. 30 minutes, three hours, whatever. You need to be prepared in your life. Well, another way to be prepared 
is to know your audience. See, I know all of you guys at least acknowledge that Christ is real, that God is real. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. But when you go outside these doors, you're going to face a different audience. And it's not as easy as being prepared with your testimony because everybody you come into contact with who starts having questions now is going to be different. And you have to be prepared for that. Some of Wally's responses were quite interesting that he gave us in how people thought or how they reasoned out within themselves that they'll get to heaven. Some people said, there's more than one way to get to heaven. Christianity isn't the only way. We're all going to heaven, so what's the problem? If I'm okay, I'll be all right. As long as I don't get into too much trouble, I'll be all right. And there was a real interesting one where somebody thought, love is all that you need. Just like the Beatles song, all you need is love. But that may be true in a Beatles song, but not necessarily when you're standing face to face with Christ on the day of your judgment. The way to answer philosophies like this is to know your Bible. And if you're going to get to know your Bible and defend your hope just as Jesus later taught, then you have to have tools in your hope chest. Some people put blankets in their hope chest. I'm a carpenter. I'm going to put tools in my hope chest. You have to give reason for people to pause to think. And that's where the Bible comes in. The Bible is a wonderful tool to have in and of itself. And in fact, that's what happened to me. I used to be one of those people that thought, if I'm okay, I'll, I'll be all right. You know, I, I don't break the law. I speed a little bit, but I don't. You know what I mean by breaking the law. I, don't, I never killed anybody. I don't kick the neighbor's dog. I don't do that kind of stuff. I'll be all right. Well, somebody took the time to ask me the question, what happens to me when I die? And then she opened up the Bible and showed me some Bible passages. You see, I, I believed in God. I believed in heaven. But I believed I was going to be okay. But then she started showing me, you can't work your way into heaven. You can't do any of that stuff. I went on to marry that girl. And I'm not telling you that if you start opening your Bible with somebody, you're going to necessarily find a mate. It doesn't always work that way. It worked out for me. But what you're going to do is you could change somebody's life. And you have to be prepared for that. The most important thing to remember when it comes to apologetics or defending your faith is not to use a two-by-four to do it. A two-by-four is not a tool. It doesn't matter how many Bible verses you write on a two-by-four, you keep hitting somebody over the head with that two-by-four, and all you're going to do is cause them pain. Believe me, I've walked into enough of them over my life. The only thing that happens when you run into a two-by-four is you sit down and concentrate on the pain. Nothing else around you matters at the time. Remember our verse, do so with love and respect. Thirdly, you have to stay up to date. The world changes, the trappings of the world changes, the philosophies of the world changes, and we have to be prepared for what's not just coming around the corner, but what's for right in front of our face. And one of the things that I've been coming to realize with regards to the 21st century is no longer do we have 
for the most part, a group of people who acknowledge God and his existence, but maybe just haven't looked at how do I follow God? How do I make him a part of my life? There's so much bombardment from the world today, from secular scientists, teachers, just atheists in general, who are just simply challenging the authenticity, the the historical accuracy of the Bible, the truthfulness of the Bible. That's our challenge that we have to be prepared for today. We have to stay up to date to that. So much is out there on the internet with opinions, but nobody has to back up those opinions with any kind of references, with any kind of knowledge, with any kind of wisdom. They're free to put their opinions out there, good or bad. But that presents a real challenge to today's youth. And in fact, the millennial generation, the 30s and under, are a quickly diminishing breed within churches and Christianity. And it's scary. And it's something we have to be prepared for because the millennial generation is in danger of becoming a lost generation when it comes to Christianity. How can you be prepared for that? There are some really good authors out there. People like Jim Wallace, Lee Strobel. These are people who were atheists. They set out to challenge the authenticity of the Bible, to challenge the truthfulness of the Bible. One of them did it just because he wanted his wife to stop being a Christian. The interesting thing was that they became Christians themselves because of it. You can do the same thing. These authors have put out some incredible books. They have some very good um, recordings of talks that they've made on the internet as well. And they give a lot of genuine reasons to believe the accuracy of the Bible. That becomes your defense when somebody challenges it. But again, you need to do so with love and respect. It has to always be in the back of your mind. Love and respect. A fourth way that we have to be prepared to give an account of the hope that we have is to live your life in accordance with God's will. St. Francis of Azizi, he's a guy who lived a long time ago, but he said some words that really hit home even in today's generation. He said, at all times, preach the gospel, and if necessary, use words. We need to live our lives as a Christian, not as somebody in the world. We need to live our lives as that living testimony so that when people look at us and they look for ways to discredit our Christianity, and they will, the world's going to do that. When they look to that, we need to be able to show them they have no evidence, that they cannot go before a judge and say, look at this man, he's a hypocrite. Look at all he does. He says he's one thing and he does everything else. We need to live our lives in such a way so as not to give anybody any evidence in our lives. That's a challenge. The world is full of temptations. Full of temptations. But we have the power through the Holy Spirit to overcome those temptations. And that's what we need to rely on. First Peter chapter 2, verses 11-12 Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans 
that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. You see, your living testimony doesn't only have the power to defend your Christianity, it has the power to change lives. People have stopped and given thought to their own lives because they have looked to other people amongst them and they've seen how they've lived their lives. My mother-in-law's funeral recently, a few weeks ago, was um, the, the message was pastored by a retired minister and he made it his, his own little mission field to go into the nursing home and to minister to all the residents there. And during his message, during the funeral, he shared with us the fact that Carol's mom didn't just say she was a Christian. She didn't just live a nominal Christian life. She lived her Christianity. And he noticed that in her very quickly. And in fact, he told us how he used her as an example to other residents of what it meant to have the hope that is found in Jesus Christ. See, Hazel Smith was under the weight of Parkinson's. She no longer had the use of her legs. She barely had the use of her arms and her hands. Her voice was quiet, but her testimony was loud and clear. And if somebody can say that about me someday, then I'll consider my life to be a success. Something you have to keep in mind with all these examples of being prepared to give an account of the hope that you have is to remember you cannot debate somebody into being a Christian. That's not what any of this is all about. This isn't about proving your point, proving that you know more than somebody else. This is about giving an account for that hope that you have and sharing that hope that you have with those around you and hoping. See, it's not just having hope, but we can also hope for things too and we can hope for lives to be changed. And this is where you have to let the Holy Spirit work in your life. You must also let God's Spirit work in your life so that you can be a witness, an effective witness. And never forget, our timing is probably not God's timing. You can't change somebody's life in 30 seconds, 3 minutes, even 30 minutes. But you can plant some seeds and somebody else is going to come along and water those seeds. And then the Holy Spirit, we can't forget Him, the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to bring Him to fruition. This is where you need to pull another tool out of your hope chest. Prayer. Prayer is the most powerful tool indeed. In fact, it's a cordless tool. You don't have to plug it in. In fact, prayer is their charger. Prayer is what energizes us to keep on going and persevering. Romans 5, verses 1 to 5 read, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. Our spirits are that part of us that allows us to communicate with God. Prayer is a common way of allowing that communication to occur. And in return, God will use his Holy Spirit to communicate with our spirits in answer to those prayers. And we have to be ready to listen. 
See, prayer isn't a one-way thing. You don't just keep praying, God do this, God do that, God do this, help this person, help that person. But as a prophet in the desert went through thunder, wind, lightning, finally he went through the silence. And it was then that he heard God's quiet and still voice to give him the guidance that he needed in his life. Being prepared to give an account of the hope we have comes in many different ways, and you may have your own ways, and that's great. However you prepare yourself to share your hope, remember this, we are never to lord our hope over those around us. We're no better than anybody else. We're just saved. In fact, if anything, our hearts should weep for those around us the way that Jesus wept for Jerusalem when he stood outside the city and pondering what he knew was going to happen. We're not better than the world. We're simply one beggar telling another beggar where to find food, the bread of life. Well, I'll call the worship team up and they'll uh, lead us in a closing hymn and then I'll close us off in prayer. I'm just going to stay up here with my toe tapper Joe. <laughs> I've always wanted to be part of a band. This may be the old, my only chance. So I'll, I'll allow me that endeavor. You can push the buttons. I, I get to push the buttons too. Okay. Well, then you can do it. You don't need me up here. No, you can't leave me. <laughs> <clears throat> Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we've been able to spend together. We spent it together this morning, Lord, together with you in prayer in song, in worship, and in word. Father, bless us this morning as we seek to follow your will. Encourage us, Lord, when we are doing just that. Remind us, Lord, when we are straying from your path and we need to get ourselves right with you. Remind us, Lord. Encourage us. Be with us. Be a part of us. And let us be a part of your service. We pray, Lord, that as your soldiers, that we would be indeed a mighty army in your kingdom, that we would be a mighty force within the city and the world as we go out, that we would be able to share with those around us the hope that is found in you, the hope that is found in your Son, who thought it not too great a sacrifice to see himself nailed to a cross on our behalf for our sin, not for his, but for what we did. And he did that because he loved us. May we love those who we come into contact with. May we love them in such a way that our only desire for them would be that they have that hope themselves someday. And we pray for these things in your name. Amen.